and I just realized, okay, if I want to do the work that I want to do in the world, this is what I need. These are the boundaries I need. And I also need to be in a space where I feel comfortable and protected enough um, that I can advocate for myself. Welcome to Curated Conversations, a podcast discussing real world issues of equity, diversity, inclusion, and belonging. I'm your host, Shaliza Jamal, founder of Curated Leadership, an organization that fosters partnerships with individuals and companies to develop their knowledge in the areas of equity and diversity to build inclusive communities. As we unpack some of these key terms and ideas and speak with our panelists today, we're going to share some of their experiences and highlight maybe what radical self-love and healing means to them both professionally and personally. So I'm going to pass it on to Layla to introduce our panelists and tell you a little bit about them before I begin to moderate. Hello, everyone. Um, So I would just like to introduce our three guest panelists for the evening, Eloise Tan, Ogo Ikalo, and Shelly Karama. Eloise Tan is a leader with 15 years of experience working in the education, research, and policy space. She grounds her research, policy, and co-design work in an anti-racist and anti-oppression framework and is on a journey to learning how to decolonize research and the policy development cycle. Currently, she is a manager at the ESDC Innovation Lab, where she leads an interdisciplinary team of researchers and design thinkers to co-create policy solutions with those that live on this land. Previously, she was the research director at People for Education. She created Mama Stay Woke, a free and inclusive parenting group that centered social justice issues facing mothers. She has been a guest on CBC's The Current and Metro Morning, briefed the UN's economic, social, and cultural rights, guest lectured at the Maytree Foundation's Policy School, and lectured at University of Toronto, McGill University, and Dublin City University. She holds a PhD in education from McGill University in Culture and Education, and was previously awarded Best New Scholar in Qualitative Research from the Canadian Education Research Association. She is proud to serve on the board for the Jane Finch Center. Ogo Ikalo is an experienced leader with more than 15 years of academic and professional experience. She has an extensive background as a strategic communicator, a diversity, equity, and human rights specialist, and a social justice community advocate. Prior to her current role as Director of Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Talent Acquisition at Hydro One, Ogo served as the Director of Women's and Human Rights at the Ontario Federation of Labour. Shelley Karamath, she, her, is an educator for liberation, equity, and inclusion. She has been a primary and junior educator with the Toronto District School Board since 2008. Shelley recently completed her Master of Education in Social Justice Education at OISE, University of Toronto. Shelley currently teaches grades three and four and enjoys learning with her students every day. She also teaches steel band, decolonizing music education, and leads the equity committee, where she works with community partners towards making the school a more inclusive space. She is also a professional musician of 30 years, a visual artist, and a world traveler. So a welcome to our three panelists, and I will pass it back to Shaliza for the panel. Thank you so much, Leila. Really excited for you all to be here tonight. Thank you again uh, for the three of you for allowing me to uh, speak to you tonight. So I'm going to get started. 
And I will say that uh, the three of you are, uh, you know, very powerful uh, leaders and um, a little bit nervous to kind of be on this other side of the moderation today. So um, here I go. Shelly, I thought I would start with you today uh, and ask you, you know, as an educator, can you share with us how your students of color in particular have been coping, not only with, um, you know, ongoing racism, but also learning in a pandemic and, and how that's been both for you and your students and even perhaps the families and communities they belong to? All right. Well, first, thanks, Shaliza, for having me and good evening to everyone. Uh, that's a really tricky question. Um, I was thinking about how to respond to that in terms of the, especially with the racism component of the question. Uh, the school that I teach at is uh, K to six. So they're quite young students. And um, obviously the pandemic has been a challenge for everyone, especially in terms of mental health with children and how it's been affecting their, you know, ability to socialize and relate with one another. It's definitely been challenging being back in the school and being together. Um, but the component of race is, is an interesting question because, I mean, I'm in my 30s and I'm only now learning the language to describe how I feel or experiences I've had of racism, right? Working, sometimes it's just a feeling. I think I mentioned this the last time we were together that sometimes it's just a feeling. You've had an interaction with someone and you really can't articulate or name it racism, right? It's just this intuitive thing that you have. And I think when we don't have the language and we don't have people around us who understand those experiences, we internalize it. It makes us, you know, second guess ourselves. We question whether or not, is it me? Am I reading this correctly? And you get almost a bit paranoid. And I think it's the same, if not worse, for children who, you know, they're experiencing um, racism and discrimination from their teachers or from their peers, but they don't necessarily recognize that it is racism because racism is so insidious. Kids think that just talking about someone's skin color in a descriptive way is racism, or they think um, they understand the overt racism of, you know, racial slurs or things like that, but they don't necessarily um, know that racism can be, you know, the way a teacher might treat them or the way their peers are treating them. And if they don't have that understanding and they don't have that language to name it, then it just kind of stays inside of them. And it's another layer of, you know, another layer to any kind of mental health um, challenges that they're having. So I think it's just another thing that they have to deal with. They, they don't know that that's what it is. And that's why they need, you know, adults in that space in the schools who do understand it, who can recognize what's happening to kind of advocate for them and to give them the support that they need. Um, but without that, it's just something that's going to build and build and carry. They're going to have to carry that wherever they go without the right support or the right education or the right outlets. Not sure if that makes sense. Yeah, I'm thinking about like, you know, my own experience and maybe the experiences of other folks who I've taught as well, when there isn't that right support, I feel like that's when it gets kind of internalized and carried on in adulthood. And right? we don't have, uh, maybe we don't have the skills to say no, or we don't have the skills to cope uh, because it's the system's not meant for that, right? And then we go on into adulthood and carry on and replicate those same same thoughts. Definitely. No, I, I know, go, go ahead. ahead. 
Nope. No, I was just going to say it's just also really difficult too when the adults of the building, like in, I'm again speaking from my own experience right now, my school is in a predominantly white middle class community. Um, and so the racialized students are are in the minority, I hate to use that word, but yeah. And so when teachers are, are, are treating their students a certain way, you know, that implicit bias or what have you, and those microaggressions, it's it's hard to address it because, you know, the aggressor, they don't even realize that that's what they're doing and that's what it is. So then how can, how can you address the problem? Because, you know, automatically it's defensiveness, it's, it's all these things. So it's, it's a tricky thing to navigate, especially when you're outnumbered in the building and trying to support those students. And it sounds like you're saying that it's sort of cyclical in terms of all the people involved in education, right? So it's not only the students and the teachers, it's like the system and the stakeholders uh, and the administration and everyone. Yes. Nobody to turn to because all these people in power, I mean, again, speaking from my own experiences, you go for help and they're quick to say, well, just because it feels like it's racism doesn't mean that's what it is. And then you start second guessing yourself and then there's really no know where to turn to or nobody to kind of to validate what it is that you're feeling or experiencing. Mm -hmm. yeah. Now, I know Olo and Eloise, you're both parents, so I'm not sure if you have that other parent perspective of what kind of Shelley's talking about as a classroom teacher that you maybe experienced or seen from the other side. I don't know if Eloise was going to jump in, but yes, yeah, certainly. Um, I, uh, I live in Markham. Um, and my son is currently attending uh, predominantly. It's 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 a marginalized uh, group of people in his daycare, but he I am very well aware that he's the only uh, African black um, little boy in his in his school, um, and um, it's something I'm cognizant about. Uh, we started at a very young age, just given. The events of not just the last three years, but of the 60s, of the times of my mom and her ancestor, and knowing what I know about uh, DEI, to start educating him, even though he's two and he can barely string a sentence. But making that awareness known to him that he is a Black boy. Um, my hubby and I, uh, he's very American. He's from the American and no knocking on Americans, but he has a very different perspective on uh, DEI and race, race relations. But um, he too is learning um, that uh, you drive 10 minutes outside of uh, Toronto and things don't quite look the same as it does um, in the urban setting. Um, and I think since we took a, a, one of our recent trips to Ottawa, that was that was quite clear to him. He suddenly became this protective father um, and, and husband, because it was the first time I think it was becoming clear to him. Um, so when we came back, it's like, oh, I see why you're educating our son um, and talking about race all the time and uh, making him known that yes, you are, you are now a second generation Canadian but you're still black. Um, and it's it's devastating that these are conversations that I have to have with a two-year-old, but it's the lay of the land. It's the reality that we live in. Um, but I'm very fortunate that he's also, yes, he's in the daycare that he is in, but they're exploring various cultures with him. Um, one of the mamas just reached out to me and said, oh, my son is reading a book about Nigerian this week. Can you recommend any 
foods or can you tell me a little bit more? So I'm fortunate from that manner. I know that uh, I recognize that not, it's not the same in every, in every uh, daycare or educational setting. Yeah, I'll, I'll jump in and, uh, and I, and I, I recognize what you're saying, Ogo, about having to have that, those difficult conversations with, with someone who's so young um, and navigating that with your partner. Uh, my oldest son is now seven, but when he was in daycare and he was three, uh, almost four, he started coming home and uh, using the word chink. And I asked him, where did you hear this? Oh, some kids at school were calling me this. Uh, they said that it means these the following things. And he told me the following things that this meant him. Um, we're Filipino. And he was yet yeah, just turning four. I, I asked the daycare a lot of questions before we even signed him up to, to this place. Um, and it was really, you know, it set off this chain of events that is not unfamiliar at all to people of racialized kids, where actually it ended up me having to take a lot of time out of work uh, to go in and educate the director of this daycare. Um, I was asked to provide free DEI training. Also, my son was put on a list because he was having behavioral issues. I said, yes, he's having behavioral issues because uh, this is what's happening to him. And I also had to start having a series of conversations with my son about um, anti-Asian racism, and it was very, very confusing to him because he was receiving, it's very complicated to, to, to unpack such a charged word like that. And actually, I apologize for using it in this context without, um, without giving warning of that. Uh, but to explain to him that there's, that people who are from China should be proud to be Chinese, but that this is like, it just sets off a chain of conversations that, that, Parents, I felt well-equipped to have it, but it was still very, very, uh, like it remains something that I think about a lot today. Um, and just the way that it was treated, how do I explain this to work that I'm taking time off work to have these conversations? It was just another example to me of the unpaid, unpaid emotional and actual like intellectual labor of uh, racialized women, particularly racialized women who do have the language to describe um, describe uh, oppression, systems of oppression to other people, which is yeah, another need for this gathering tonight. Yeah, and I think it's it just um, it's really heavy, right? That children at age two, age three, you know, Shelley, you're talking about uh, primary students as well, that we have to have these conversations. And I think we're going to have these conversations until we actually get to a place where adults are taking responsibility and accountability to have those conversations themselves, right? And um, thank you all for, for sharing that because um, it is important to, to think about, right? And as adults, what can we do then in that, in that realm? And Ogo, turning a little bit, we talked about the students, you talked about children, but in your experience working in human rights and communications and now as a director of diversity, 
What are some of the key issues that you've heard, seen, experienced, observed that Black, Indigenous, and folks of color are facing in the workplace? That's such a great question and a loaded one. Um, Some of the terminologies have been uh, alluded to or mentioned already. I mean, we talk about, you know, unconscious bias and implicit bias. Um, Those are some of the uh, biggest ones. The white privilege often goes acknowledged. And in my current environment, we don't even use the word white privilege. They're not ready for that yet. We use privilege um microaggressions um you speak really good english lisa considering considering what um the list goes on and on um and uh it's a it's a it's a constant challenge um that um a lot of us in the work are also exhausted to deal with yes we're the professionals in the space but it's, it's a lot to carry and that goes into emotional attacks especially as BIPOC people doing this work um they look at you and it's like you're supposed to be the know of all things black in my case or um probably in Eloise's case all things uh, Asian and you all things South Asian and I make it clear that yes, I am a specialist um, in this field, but I don't know how to click, which is a question that has been asked of me by a colleague who came back from South Africa, met a little boy named Tuk Tuk, and gave her gave him her sandwich, and he clicked something to her in his dialect, and she came to me because I'm also African, and asked me how to how to click. I'm like. Unfortunately, I, I didn't learn that dialect. I, I spoke English primarily and a different uh, language in my household when I was growing up. So these are some of the emotional attacks that comes with the work that we do. Uh, from a human rights perspective, some of those equity issues are um, uh, pay equity, which we're still fighting for right now. I think we're still, as women, on average, making $72 on the, on, on the dollar to a man. Um, paid sick days that came into play very much for our healthcare professionals at the height of this pandemic, where suddenly it's like, oh, you don't, you don't get sick days. And mostly what we saw in research and data is that most of those healthcare professionals on the front line are from racialized, um, marginalized groups that don't have, um, access to even just a day off of, of work. Something that some of their colleagues in the same positions and roles have. And yet we have, uh, you know, Employment Standards Act, we have uh, Labor Relations Act in place in Ontario and also on a federal scale that is supposed to be utilized and um, spread equally, but they're just not. So these are some of the continuous um, issues that are arising. And now also you have to throw in the, uh, as a final thought, the work, the remote work, and now going back to work. One of the ones that came back recently was proximity bias which is when um, we return, as we return back to work or we're doing the, um, in my case, we're doing a moderated, uh, where it's like two anchor days or whatnot, but some some employees can still choose to work remotely. So some of the concerns we're, or, we're thinking of is, so how about those who get to work every day in the office or choose to work every day in the office? What kind of preferential treatment may or may not um, occur? Uh, may, may they experience as opposed to me 
choosing to continue to work remotely and then at an intersectional as to me as a woman, as a woman of color, uh, perhaps as a 2SLGBTQIA plus woman. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of, um, a lot of uh, uh, issues <laughs> that BIPOC people face um, in the workplace that we continue to build on and hope to uh, try to eradicate however slow it, it may be. Absolutely. And I think building off that question, you know, um, Eloise, I don't know if you can take this one, but many community community members, as you've shared and is in our chat, have shared that they feel exhausted, they feel siloed, they feel um, silenced or kind of uh, they don't know where to turn. Right. Um, and many folks are in roles that are advocating for justice and equality in their workplace. And so how might someone actually navigate these issues in the workplace of whether it's being tokenized or they're the ones who are always asked to lead social justice and equity work? How do they navigate that in the workplace and any examples that you've had that you've had to navigate it in the workplace? Yeah, thanks. It's a, it's a great question and it's something that I think about a lot. Um, I think a lot about my choice to remain in spaces in the workplace where I'm primarily a researcher and uh, a policy advisor, because that's very, that's very deliberate on my part. Um, I'm always pulled into the EDI space, um, but I think you can do EDI, anything, it doesn't matter what your role is in, in an organization, there, EDI should not be just siloed into one part of an organization. Right now, I work for a huge bureaucracy. I work for the government of Canada. I work at one of the biggest ministries at ESDC. There's 39,000 employees um, just in our ministry alone. Uh, and it's incredibly challenging for me when I speak up as a researcher and I say something and people say, Oh, well, I thought you were, I thought you were the a manager of a research team. And how do you know about uh, equity and inclusion and diversity? And they think that they're completely separate buckets of knowledge. And I'm always saying, well, like who you decide to hire, that's, that requires an EDI lens. Who you decide uh, to partner with in a research, that requires an EDI lens. Like um, what you consider researchable, that is a, that requires an EDI lens. Like we, we at in the ministry that I work in, like we create social policy for how programs and benefits are delivered. If you're not looking at this through an EDI lens, then I don't know what, like, uh, you know, one little EDI team um, of ten people who is really who really has an HR function. That's not that's not going to cut it. And um, I definitely do feel fatigued and overwhelmed. Um, and I have felt like that over the years. I'm sure people here have felt when I, uh, when you start talking about race and systemic oppression out loud in meetings, someone will kind of come find you in the hallway, in the washroom. Uh, uh, racialized, racialized, but we find each other. We find each other, and you end up having it. You end up having like the best chats with with people in the washroom, out like in the hallway. For me, that's how I found a lot of community when we were face to face. Um, but it ends up being, it does end up 
being like this little, not little, like a massive kind of underground network in a huge bureaucracy where it's like, I can see Shelly nodding along. You also worked in a huge bureaucracy with the three of us all happen to right now work in huge bureaucracies. And like, we have our own conversations. Like we leave meetings or we're in the meetings and yo, know, like we got our own back channel tackling with people uh, like what's going on here and, and, and to try to support each other. Um, I don't have all the answers, but one strategy that I use when I'm feeling fatigued and overwhelmed um, in the workplace directly because of related to advocating for uh, EDI lenses to be used in the workplace. One strategy that I use is actually, I just try to name things. I say things out loud. I say, I am, I am really tired, exhausted. Uh, I feel overwhelmed by the amount of conversations that I'm being asked to be in or lead with that explicitly re relate to race, uh, gender identity, this and that, and I don't feel properly supported. And I need the following things. Like, this has come with a lot of years of practice uh, to be so direct and to literally name out how I'm feeling and what I need. And I actually still to this day, when I say those things, uh, I feel incredibly uncomfortable. You talked, I, I loved your opening remarks, Shaliza, when you were talking about decolonization and unlearning. Um, for me as an Asian woman coming particularly from a country that has like 300 years of uh, history being colonized, uh, saying what I want and what I need is very radical for me and saying it out loud to people who are my superiors. I've always worked in mostly white spaces, except for this one beautiful place that I worked in. Um, really writing it down, saying, naming how, what you feel and what you need. It to me is an act of radical self-love because I'm saying, this is how I feel and this is what I need from you. Um, and then also the last thing I'll add on that is because I work in a huge bureaucracy, I've learned over time with the support and mentors of others uh, to actually, I quantify a lot of things. Say like, this is how many lost hours uh, and I'll say like literally putting dollar signs on things. Like if, the, the, if we, if we just had people on each of these teams, if we hire for these particular attributes, we wouldn't have to put all of these conversations on like 10 people in an organization of almost 40,000. Um, it, it doesn't, it's not actually efficient even by the standards of like a capitalist system. Uh, so learning to to put things into terms where people will understand and actually listen to um, has been a strategy that I use as well. And I'm presuming, Eloise, that that took a lot of practice and time to kind of get there, right? You can't necessarily, for folks who are listening, it takes time, right, to kind of get there, to be able to say what you want to need. I think that's the whole idea of, like you said, radical self-love is getting to a point where you're able to express yourself. Is that right? And, and none of that is done on my own. All of that is through the support and mentorship of uh, BIPOC women around me and BIPOC women who I have no business talking to because they're like, to me, I'm like, you're up here. How do you even have time for me? And that's why I give back to others. Like when, when master students reach out to me, like, yes, I can talk to you if that's your struggle. 
where you are and you're feeling like none of these readings relate to you. Yes, I'll talk to you because none of this is like, you know, I feel like I'm just teaching, I'm just sharing strategies that other people shared with me. And that's what, that's what worked for them. And I'm just trying to adapt it to my own situation. And my confidence comes from the confidence that other BIPOC women have helped me instill in myself. Yeah, I think that really hits home for this idea of community, because I feel like that's where I'm feeling too. You need people to lean on and to, to get that mentorship or advice, or even just talk about things uh, and in a space where under, people will understand you, right? Yeah. I see some nodding heads. Feel free, Shelly and Ogo, if you want to interject at all. Yeah, no, it definitely comes with time, that empowerment to speak up for yourself. Um, I call it the no Fs to give. <laughs> As you get more more comfortable and familiar in who you are and in your space, um, it's just like, I'm going to call you out on that. But you also choose your battles because it's like, is this is this worth the time that's going to take to educate this person on? Or do I just, you know let this one go for now and, you know, continue to observe, observe this behavior or does it need calling out? Right. Um, because what I find, um, also being a leader in the work that we do as DI, you're also being looked at as a role model. So it's like you confined in this. It's a little bit like, a pandora's box like you you want to speak out but you're also very cognizant of how you speak out so you're not called out on on certain things or being accused of doing certain things that are not inclusive like oh look at her she's the director or she's the lead on this but she's totally not inclusive so you're so mindful of everything all the time um and sometimes i have to check myself and i utilize my support groups to Remind me of who I am. Like, no, this, this, you won't let this normally go down. You shouldn't let this go down. Or, yeah, I would have done the same thing. So definitely relying on, uh, on, on your colleagues in the space. Um, even I learned from junior colleagues because they're facing things that I didn't face. And I learned through mentoring others. I get mentored by others as well, junior and those considered above, above me. But yeah, it comes to time, that empowerment piece. It's like, it, it's a comfortability thing. And you will, I'm pretty sure most of us will get there as we get more mature. It's just like, yeah, no, I don't need to put up with this. Yeah, I, I hear that. And I think that kind of leads me to my second question. I mean, you're all doing advocacy work in one way or another, and you have very full lives, um, you know, extracurricular activities or children or, you know, um, other activities that you do. And so, how do you know when it's time to slow down? Um, and can you even slow down? Or how do you set boundaries and keep that balance between your personal and professional lives so that you're not burnt out, you know, doing, doing this work that you're doing? I'll, I'll jump in. Uh, well, your body will tell you when to slow down. Um, my body told me and I became extremely unwell and uh, I didn't, I ended up not being able to work for, I think they, like even that's unhealthy to say like that's where I went. I was unable to work. I wasn't able to do anything <laughs> for, for two months, um, a couple of years ago. And actually 
you know, when I, if I replay my mind, like the Eloise that was just speaking a couple seconds ago, that sounded very like, well, I asked for this and this and and like, although you're saying like the no Fs to give. Well, yeah, when something like that happens to you, um, you get sent to the emergency room and then you're basically put on bed rest for two months. I And I knew what had put me there. It was a combination of stress and just trying to do, like just not listening to my body. Um, yeah, I I can't I can't have that happen to me again. So a lot of it comes from like knowing. I was gonna say knowing your worth, but that knowing your worth, but it sounds like a. I don't mean it in the sense of pay equity. I mean it in the sense of like I was no longer able to be there for my my family, um, my children, my partner, my friends, my mother, my my cousin, like anybody in my life, like I was no longer able to be there, um, let alone for me or for others that I was trying to navigate, uh, advocate for and alongside with. Um, and I just realized, okay, if I want to do the work that I want to do in the world, this is what I need. These are the boundaries I need. And I also need to, um, be in a space where I feel comfortable and protected enough um, that I can advocate for myself. But yeah, really for me, it's like I did burn out. <laughs> so I, I, I feel like it would be really disingenuous of me to say like, oh, I always met like, no, I didn't. And I, I, uh, I, I didn't, I saw all the signs and I, and I, I tried to push through anyways, you know, I, maybe it'll resonate with some of you. You're like, well, I'll just keep going. And then I have this one weekend, right. Or I'm going to have this one week and it's going to calm down and things will be better or in the summer things will be better. And I don't, I don't think like that anymore. Um, because I'm worth more than that. Um, right now I still frame it in the sense of like, uh, I need to be there for my children and the people around me. Like I'm not at that level of like, I recognize that I have a ways to go in terms of self-love and self-care. Cause I don't even see it as a, is in terms of like you Eloise as a person on your own. I still, I still understand my worth in relation to what I can, how I can be of service to others, which is some like, that is something that I'm trying to unlearn over time. Um, yeah, so I'll just, <laughs> I guess mine is like a cautionary tale is that I'm just saying like, listen to your body and uh, listen to the the your the closest people around you. If they're starting to tell you things like, uh, maybe you should slow down. Don't be that person that's like, well, I can't say no. Actually, you can say no. You can say no. And it feels so damn good <laughs> to say no. <laughs> feels so good. And you can say no and give the opportunity to somebody else. Um, if it's pain. So, <laughs> um, yeah, I'll stop there. In the chat, folks are talking about pacing ourselves. And, you know, um, I talked a little bit about racial fatigue and you talked about boundaries. Uh, Stacey's saying it's so important we pace ourselves and say um, no more often so that we can put ourselves first. Running on to empty and crashing and burning, uh, it's still a habit that we're trying to break. And again, I think that's very a colonial habit that we go, 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 and that people take, take, take from us. And I'm so envious of some of my colleagues, often who are, are white folks who are always saying no or shutting their computer, like on the dot, 
um, and and thinking about what are they protecting and and what do we as people of color need to protect as well and why do I perhaps need to feel that I have to work extra hard? And yes, capitalism and merit and trying to prove my worth um, in comparison to white folks. And um, I'm not sure if Shelley or Olga want to add to that, but uh, on top of that question, I think, yes, setting the boundaries, but also it's, it's thinking about, you know, who do we turn to in these situations? And that was kind of a question asked by Lola in the chat, when there's mediation, when we need advice, who do we speak to? You mentioned, you know, there's a few mentors that you have, but when we're feeling this way, are there places we can go to? And Ogo, I know you work in human rights and you worked in labor relations um, and you're in a, in a role that's connected to human resources now too. So I don't know if you have perhaps uh, some guidance for folks when it comes to that question. I do, but I'm going to let Shelly go first because I know she came off mute. And I want to see what she has to say. I, I think I'm probably completely missed the segue now to say what I was thinking, but I just wanted, I was thinking about culture and how it kind of plays into this inability to set boundaries um, because I know, okay, so I'm from the Caribbean, obviously, but also part Caribbean, but obviously also part of the South Asian diaspora, just like Shaliza. Shaliza and I share a lot of these identity crises that we struggle with, but it's hard because when it's in your own family and your own culture, it's so deeply embedded that you're supposed to put yourself last and put everybody else first. There's that on top of that colonial, um, those, those, those structures and things that we, we have to kind of battle against. So, and then when you're without children of your own and without those other responsibilities, you feel like you, you're obligated to give more of yourself because you don't have those separate things. Like I don't have children of my own at home. So then your work life becomes your life. And when you're a teacher, your students become your life. And I think it's that much harder to, to separate. And there's that guilt that you feel when you do say, no, this is what I need. Because then people will be like, you're always thinking about what are people going to think? They're going to think, oh, you have no kids. Why can't you kind of thing? So it's that much harder to, to set those boundaries. And even going further back to what we were talking about before, um, sometimes that radical self-love means knowing when to leave a certain environment. And I think I have that advantage as a teacher. I came into this building that I'm teaching at now. It's my fourth year there. The principal wanted me to expose the children in this community to certain things. And being the only racialized teacher in the building, there is that burden of having to, to lead that work with your students day in, day out, and deal with the backlash from the parents who aren't as supportive or understanding of what it is you're doing. But you would, there's that guilt piece again of like, well, I don't want to leave because if I leave, who's going to like look out for these kids, you know, and who's going to do this? And it's just going to go back to whatever. But when you don't have the support in the building and you don't have colleagues who understand, because even the one or two people of color who might work in the building doesn't mean that they necessarily see things and understand things the way that you do. So you're, you, you can't assume that they're like-minded. There's a lot of unlearning that has to happen, you know? And so it's having the courage to say, you know what? I gave 110%. I gave my all. And there's really nothing here for me. I don't have the support that I need. So maybe it's time for me to maybe 
try looking for work at a different school and removing myself from that situation and putting myself in a space where there might be more people who would be inclined to kind of join you on the journey is what I was thinking. I think that is a great segue, Shelley. So that's perfect. I and concur I think, completely. <laughs> go ahead, Dazza. No, I hope I didn't cut you off, Shalise. I was saying, yeah, I just concur completely. It is a great segue. I had to leave an opportunity that was um, sought after. I think I was the third youngest Black woman to have this position. It was great, but my mental health and my psychological safety were compromised. And even now, as I sit here, I feel unfinished in that position. But for my mental health and my mental space, and this is a self-care, self-love, I had to leave and even come into that, that realization was difficult, still is difficult um, to, to comprehend, but um, I know I'm in a better space for it. Um, and just in terms of like setting boundaries and slowing down um, when Eloise was like, I don't have all the answers. There is no book. There's no, it's like, parenthood you read all these books about breastfeeding and stuff like they don't tell you your milk doesn't come in right away <laughs> so when you're there and the baby this is very intimate and the baby's looking at you and you just like you know like nothing can prepare you for certain things like you can read and you can research and all that so for me i've decided that there's no there's no decisive answer i set boundaries every day most of the times i need it sometimes i don't right um, but I, I try not to beat myself up about it. I try to take it as a learning to, uh, for a way to improve because we're constantly improving ourselves as human beings and as individuals in this space. And going back to some of the question, um, one of the questions I think, uh, Shaliza had asked me to address, um, what came to mind when you when you asked the question and i don't remember it exactly but I, this example came to mind when i was thinking of becoming a parent and starting a family um i was challenged with that like what's going to happen with my career i'm at the height of it what's going to happen to my job what's going to happen because that has been my baby that has been my family and now there's this new new chapter in my life um how am i going to navigate that where am i going to end up um, when, when that comes about. And what I did was lean into my, my colleagues. I leaned into my family. Those are my support networks. Um, and I'm a very spiritual person. So for me, I leaned into, um, uh, my higher power, um, and had those conversations in closet for myself, had the conversations with my, my, uh, support, support system and went back and forth. And, um, got the affirmation I needed from for myself through their words of wisdom and advice and continue to get those affirmations on a daily basis because oftentimes I feel like I'm failing. I'm either failing my child, I'm failing my partner, I'm failing my work um, because these are some of the, as Shelly was saying, coming from an immigrant community where you put yourself last. <laughs> You do everything else for everyone. And in my community, we call it the black tax. You have to pay that black tax. You have to go the extra mile to your Caucasian colleague to get even an inch of the recognition or to get to the step that you want to be that seems so easy to them. So it's a constant challenge. Um, there's no definitive answer for it in, in my perspective. Um, but you have to look for balance every day. 
and you have to build community around yourself, a community of support, community of people who are in who work in this in similar fields. Because last week when I reached out to to um to Jaliza, who's one of my key supports, and our other colleague, and I'm like, I'm losing my mind. I knew they would understand exactly what I was going through because they're dealing with it themselves, right? Um, and sometimes you just need that um shared voice that you're not alone in this you know they're facing the same challenges and they're looking for someone to talk to too and share ideas on how they would navigate to the space i'm hearing a lot of great things uh you know about building that community about practicing setting boundaries and knowing that we're not always going to get it right and really listening to ourselves and reflecting about some of those capitalistic and colonial ideas that we've internalized and having some, uh, you know, compassion for ourselves as we learn to unpack and unlearn some of those systems and structures and beliefs. So we've come to the end of our time together, and I really want to acknowledge, uh, you know, you all have uh, an evening ahead of you. Uh, is there any last comment from our panelists that you would like to uh, say before we offer gratitude and close out for this evening? I would. I just wanted to say thank you again, Shaliza, for creating this space for us here tonight. When you asked me to be a panelist, I was like, okay, I'm not really sure what I can contribute to this, but I'm glad that you asked me just because I learned so much from Ogo and Eloise tonight and from everybody here. So I'm, I'm really very deeply grateful to you and all of you tonight for being here. So thank you. Thank you, Shelly. And I, I strongly believe we all have something to contribute no matter what our title or our background is. So I really appreciate all of you being here today. I just want to end with offering my gratitude for you, Shelly, for Eloise, for Ogo, uh, for all of our participants for being with us on this Monday evening uh, and sharing your stories, for listening um, and offer that, uh, that gratefulness to all of you, uh, to Layla, Bennett and Heather for opening today and for, for being here and for all of our community. If you want to join us and continue the conversation, uh, Shelly's really uh, motivating me to start doing a monthly series. So hopefully we can start that. Uh, just join me all in gratitude for our speakers as well. Thank you so much, everyone. Thank you for being here today. Thank you for tuning in to Curated Conversations podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please like, rate, and review the podcast. Subscribe and listen to past episodes at www.curated-leadership.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. To learn more about Curated Leadership, visit us on Instagram at Curated Leadership.